Welcome to Faster Please, the podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas. Several times a month, I'll feature a lively conversation with a fascinating and provocative guest about how to make the world a better place through scientific discovery, technological innovation, and economic growth. You're also going to want to check out my Faster Please newsletter here on Substack throughout the week for fresh essays, Q&As, and stories from around the internet and around the world. You can see the computer age everywhere, but in the productivity statistics, said Nobel laureate economist Robert Solow in 1987. A decade later, the 90s productivity boom was in full swing. Likewise, it took decades for electrification to have an impact on productivity growth in the early 20th century. Today, artificial intelligence can write a coherent paragraph or generate an image from a simple prompt. But when will AI show up in the stats, boosting productivity and then economic growth? Avi Goldfarb joins Faster Please, the podcast, to discuss those questions and more. Avi holds the Rotman Chair in Artificial Intelligence and Healthcare at the University of Toronto's Rotman School of Management. He's also co-author, along with Ajay Agarwal and Joshua Gans, of 2022's Power and Prediction, The Disruptive Economics of Artificial Intelligence. Avi, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Great to be here. What this book is about, and then you can tell me if I'm, I, I've gotten it horribly wrong. This is a book about machines making predictions using advanced statistical techniques. One, is that more or less right? And two, why is that an important capability? That's more or less right. Uh, the only place where I take a little bit of a you know, little correction there is the reason we're talking about artificial intelligence today is almost entirely due to advances in computational statistics. And so, uh, yes, it is just stats. And that sounds kind of uh, unexciting. But uh, once we have prediction at scale, uh, it can be really transformative to all aspects of business and the economy. And so there's a reason why we're calling computational stats artificial intelligence, and we didn't used to. Prediction at scale. That's that that that's a uh, a great three word uh, a description. Probably why you used it. Um, to what extent is that already is that now happening? Um, because, you know, the name of the book is Power and Prediction, Disruptive Economics of Artificial Intelligence. Is this prediction at scale, is this already disruptive to some degree or is it will be disruptive? Technology, for the most part, is pretty close to there in the sense that we can do prediction at scale because we have the data and we have computational power to do all sorts of amazing things. Uh, for the most part, it hasn't been disruptive yet. And it hasn't been disruptive yet because just because we have the technology doesn't mean we know how to use it well. And we know how to use it productively in, you know, in our processes and systems in order to get the most out of it. Are there are there sectors currently doing this, but it's just is it just they're not doing it well yet? It, it, it's it's in a variety of sectors, but not enough companies doing it. So I'm asking a question, I guess, about about diffusion, about right. tangible okay. capital. Do they, so, where, where are we in this? Process? Yeah, so there's um, lots of companies are already using these machine learning tools, um, but they tend to be using them for things they were already doing before. So if you had some prediction process to predict if you're a bank, whether somebody's gonna pay back a loan, 
uh, in the very old days, you'd have some you know, human at the you know, loan officer look the, the customer up and down and you know, go with their gut. And then uh, by starting in the 1960s and especially you know, in the 90s and beyond, we started to use scoring rules, partly your credit score and partly other things to get a sense of, uh, to predict whether people are gonna pay them back. And so we were already doing some, uh, a prediction task done by a machine. And now increasingly we're using these machine learning tools. We're using what we're calling AI over the past five to 10 years to predict whether people are gonna pay back a loan. We're seeing those kinds of things all over the place, which is you had some prediction, maybe it was even a machine prediction before, now we're using machine learning, we're using AI to make those predictions a little bit better. So lots of companies are using that. Um, I mean, that's, that sounds incremental. Yeah. That sounds like it, an incremental advance. It's absolutely an incremental advance. And so we call these point solutions, which is you, you look at your workflow, you identify something that a human is doing, you take out that human, you drop in a machine, you don't mess with the workflow. Because it's always easier to do things when you don't mess with the workflow. The problem is when you don't mess with the workflow, there's only so much gain you can get. And so uh, we've seen uh, you know, AI-based point solutions, prediction point solutions all over the place. We haven't seen real transformation in very many industries. We've seen it in a couple. We haven't seen it in very many industries because real transformation requires you know, doing things differently. So do you think that it has happened in one or two industries that you think would actually, would meet that bar of transformational? Can you give me an example? Absolutely. So. Um, if you wanted to be a cab driver in the city of London 20 years ago, or even today, it takes three years of schooling, okay? Uh, getting your, you know, learning to navigate those streets is really, really hard. And especially learning to navigate and predict where the traffic's gonna be is really, really hard. And so there is a really you know, rigorous process to screen people to be taxi drivers. Um, in the US, 30 years ago, there were something like two or 300 taxi drivers in the whole country. Um, about 15 years ago, two technologies came about. The first one being uh, digital dispatch, which is a sense, essentially uh, tools to, for drivers to find riders, sometimes through prediction, sometimes through other tools. And then the second part was what's uh, you know what's been disruptive with respect to that you know three years of schooling in the city of London, which is prediction tools for navigating a city, right? So you know, this is your GPS system. Mm -hmm. In the early days, many people selling digital dispatch and uh, you know, uh, navigational predictions were selling them into professional driving companies, like into taxi companies. Hey, your taxi drivers can be fifteen percent more efficient if they know the best route at this time. Um, that's what we call a point solution. Do, you're already doing this, you take out some part of the human process, you drop in a machine, you do it a little bit better. A couple of companies realized that digital dispatch combined with uh, you know, navigational prediction could create an entirely new type of industry, right? And this is the ride hailing industry, you know, led by Uber and Lyft and others, that's, you know, a totally new kind of way to do personal transportation that, uh, you know, that made millions of amateur drivers as good as professional because they could navigate the city and find drivers and find riders. Okay, so example number one is the taxi industry, you know, that, uh, you know, personal 
uh, ride hailing, for lack of a better word, uh, has been transformed through, you know, partly through digital and really those, those maps are important. And a big part of those maps is machine learning tools and figuring out where the traffic is, et cetera. So industry number one. Industry number two is advertising. Okay, so um, I don't know if you've seen the, the TV show Mad Men. Okay, yes, you know, that, that was really how the advertising industry operated well into the 90s. Not, you know, maybe not the, the soap opera aspect of it. Maybe, maybe not, I don't know. But um, the idea that there's a lot of whining and dining and charming uh, people to convince them to spend millions of dollars on an ad campaign. And whether a campaign worked or not was largely based on gut feel and which kinds of customers you targeted and which TV show and which magazine, all of that was uh, priced based on intuition, not much else. Okay. Digital advertising came along in the late 1990s and uh, it was, you know, the first ways we thought about digital advertising was that it was like the magazine industry. So instead of advertising in People Magazine, you're gonna advertise on Yahoo using the exact same processes you did in People Magazine. So uh, there was a rate card and it was gonna be you know, so many dollars per thousand users. And uh, if you were doing general search, it might be $10. And if you're looking for real estate, it might be 50. And that's exactly how the magazine industry was priced for. You know, some magazines were more than others based on readership and, and topic. And it was all based on uh, personal selling, intuition, deals, et cetera. Then people realized that digital wasn't just, um, you know, digital advertising created an opportunity to predict who the user was, who, was, who might see your ad. So a user arrives at a publisher and an ad needs to be served and you can predict uh, who that user is and what they might want and when they might want. Based on those predictions, Rather than just do the magazine industry, you know, old way of doing things, you can now serve the right ad to the right person at the right time. Starting around 2000, there were all these innovations in online advertising that led to an industry that today looks almost nothing like the industry that you saw in Mad Men. Every time a user goes to a website, there is a real-time auction in fractions of a second uh, between, in effect, thousands of advertisers for that user's attention. And there are uh, all of these intermediary steps, lots and lots of intermediaries, largely led by Google, but um, some other players that complement Google in that process uh, to create an entirely new kind of ad industry. The ad industry has had a system level change because uh, we can now predict uh, or given um, impression or given user who's looking at a page, what they might want and when they might want. So predictions change the industry. How confident are you that this technology is powerful enough that we'll see system level changes across the economy, that this is a general purpose technology that will be significant? And, and do we have any idea what those changes will be? Or is it, you know, they'll be big, but we don't know exactly what they are. The technology itself is pretty extraordinary. And so in lots and lots of contexts, I'm pretty confident the technology is gonna get there. There's some constraints on it, which is that um, you need data on the thing you're trying to predict in order for the predictions to work, but there's lots and lots of industries where we have great data. And so the technology barriers 
I think are being overcome, you know, some industries faster than others, but they're being overcome in lots and lots of places. That's not the only barrier. Okay, so the technology is barrier number one. Um, you know, think of an industry that, I, uh, that I'm particularly excited about the potential of the technology, which is healthcare. So uh, why is it so exciting for healthcare? Because diagnosis is at the center of how healthcare operates. If you know what's wrong with somebody, it's much easier to treat them, it's much less costly to treat them, uh, and you can deliver uh, the right treatment to the right person at the right time. Diagnosis, by the way, is prediction. It wasn't obvious the way we thought about that in the past, but really what it is, it can be solved statistical prediction by using the information you have, the data on your symptoms, to fill in the information you don't have, which is what's actually causing your symptoms. And, uh, if you do a Google Scholar search for something like um, artificial intelligence healthcare, you'll get a few million hits. There's lots of people who've done uh, research producing um, you know, AI for diagnosis. It's really, the technology in many cases is there and lots of other cases, it's pretty close. That doesn't mean it's gonna transform healthcare. <laughs> Why not? You know, what's an AI doing diagnosis? They're uh, doing a thing that makes uh, doctors special. Yes, like a doctor in their workflow does all sorts of other things. They help patients navigate the stress of the healthcare system. They provide some treatments, et cetera. But the thing that they went to school for all those years for, and that the, uh, for many of them, the thing that they have that nurses and pharmacists and other medical professionals don't is the ability to diagnose, okay? So when you bring in machine diagnosis into the healthcare system, that's gonna be very disruptive to doctors. Well, okay, there's lots of reasons why then doctors might resist. So first, they might be worried about their own jobs. Second, they might just not trust the machines and believe they're good enough. And they're going to have, because the medical system, uh, doctors are a core source of, like, of power. They help determine how things work. Uh, they're going to resist many of the biggest system level changes from AI-based diagnosis. And so you may have regulatory barriers. You may have organizational incentive barriers. Um, and you may have barriers from the individual people on the ground who sabotage the machines that are trying to replace them. All of these are reasons, even if the technology is good enough, that uh, you know, AI in healthcare may be a long way away, even though we can see what that vision looks like. Uh, in other industries, um, uh, you know, it might be closer. Um, in lots of retail contexts, you're trying to figure out uh, who wants what, and when, Amazon's pretty good at that in lots of ways. And um, you know, in-store retailers can do that too. And so there's reasons to think that um, disruption in many retail industries will come faster. But I'm not gonna, like, I just wanna be a little careful here, which is that uh, I see the technology is there. Yeah. I see lots of the, there's some barriers on the technology side if the payoff is big enough, I think most of the technology-related barriers can be overcome. And so, like, uh, give you a sense of this. Um, we hear a lot, something like, oh, we don't want to do AI in our company because it's just so difficult to get the data organized and get the right data to, uh, to build those predictions. Okay. Well, yeah, it's difficult. But if the payoff was going to be transformative to the company and make the company millions or billions of dollars, 
then they'll spend thousands of mil or millions in order to make it happen. And so the a lot of the challenges aren't tech specific, they're incentives and organization based. I think of the classic uh, Paul David pa paper uh, about, you know, the, the dynamo that, it, you know, took a while before factories used, you know, electricity and they actually had to redo the how the, you know, the, the factory was um, uh, designed to get full productivity value. And you say that we are sort of in the between times. And, I, and that makes me think of the classic, you know, solo paradox. We see computers everywhere, but in the statistics. Well, he said that in 87. So are we in like in the 1987 period with this technology? Yeah. Or are we now in the late 90s where it's starting oh. to happen and, you know, the boom is about to begin? I think we're in the early 80s. Um, which, not even the late 80s. Not even, we, you know, by the, you know, he said that in 1987, like by yeah. 1990, it was showing up in the data. So yeah. just missed it. Okay. Uh, in the sense that um, we don't quite know what the organization of the future looks like. So there's there's reasons to think for many industries, it might take a long time, like many years or decades for it to show up in the productivity stats. I am... So while I do say, yeah, we're in the early 80s because we haven't figured it out yet, I'm a little more optimistic uh, that you know maybe it won't be 30 years to really have the impact. Um, mostly because we just have the lessons of history. Okay, So we know uh, from past technologies and business leaders know from past technologies, uh, you know, both electricity and the internet and the steam engine and others, that, uh, that it requires some system level change. And um, we now have the toolkits to think through how do you build system level change without sort of destroying your company. Okay, so uh, you know, when electricity was diffusing in the 1890s, we had like, there wasn't really any idea that this might take 40 years to figure out what the factory of the future looks like. It just wasn't you know, on anybody's mind. Um, and the, the management challenges of redesign were, were unstudied and there was no sort of easily accessible knowledge to, to figure that out. Uh, jump forward to the eighties in computing. Again, that the, you know, we hadn't even learned the lessons of electricity back then, you know, Paul David's paper came out in 1990. Um, and so it was a, it was a solution to the solar paradox. Um, and so, but since then, we have a much better understanding of what's required for technological change. There's been uh, you know, decades of, econ of economics literature, uh, Eric Brynjolfsson, Tim Bresnahan, Paul David, and others. Uh, and there's been decades of, um, of management literature taking a lot of those ideas from econ and trying to communicate them to a broader audience to say, you know, this, yes, it's hard, but doing nothing can also be a disaster. And so, uh, so being proactive is useful. And then there's a third, there's another piece about optimism here, which is that uh, the entrepreneurial ecosystem is uh, different than it used to be. And we have lots and lots of very smart people building tech companies, trying to make the system level change happen. And that uh, gives us more effectively, more kicks at the can to actually figure out what the right system looks like. Do you find, you know, chat GPT and these, you know, um, text to image generators like Dolly, are these significant innovations that can cause, you know, system change? Or are they 
toys that can't figure out how many arms people have and are able to produce, you know, B-level middle school essays? They're both. Okay. So, and what do I mean by that? The, the technology is incredible. Okay. The, what ChatGPT can do and Dolly can do, it's really, at least to me, it's amazing. Um, and uh, the, especially on, you know, what ChatGPT can do, it's much better than I, like that came much faster than, than at least I thought it was going to come. Okay. So I was, when I first saw it, I was blown away. So far, it's a toy. So far, most applications have been, uh, hey, isn't this cool? I can do this kind of thing. In a handful of places, it's moved beyond a toy to a point solution. Uh, Joshua Jay and I wrote a piece in HBR and we drafted it out. And rather than reread it and edit it 60 times like we normally do, we sent it into ChatGPT and said, write this you know, in a way that's easy to read. And it did. We had to do some final edits afterwards, but like a, you know, we're already doing the same thing. It made our workflow a little bit, uh, you know, a piece of our workflow a little bit more efficient point solution. A lot of the uh, talk that you hear in universities, uh-oh, we have to change the way we do final exams uh, because ChatGPT can you know, write those exams for our students. Sure, um, but that's really not thinking through the potential of what the technology can do. So what we've seen so far are toys and point solutions, but I do see extraordinary potential for system solutions in both. So both DALI and ChatGPT and you know, all these generative models. So ChatGPT, if you think through, think about it, what does it do? Uh, one thing it does is it allows anybody to write well. Like I told my students, you no longer have an excuse to write a bad essay with terrible grammar and punctuation that's not structured like a five paragraph essay. No excuse anymore. It used to be, okay, maybe there's an excuse because you know you were, uh, you know, there was some time crunch and you had other things to do or um, your language skills, you know, you're a math person, not, you know, not an English person, does, no excuse anymore. Um, ChatGPT uh, upskills all those people who are good at other things, but whose opportunities were constrained by their ability to write. So what's that new system? I don't know. But uh, there's a lot more people around the world who are bad at writing English than are good at writing English. And uh, if they can all, if now everybody is, you know, high school level, uh, you know, be high school level student uh, able to write an essay or able to write well in English and email or whatever it might be. That's going to be amazing. We just have to figure out how to harness that. We haven't yet. You've sort of given us maybe a, a potential time frame broadly for when we, you know, might see this in, in, you know, in the data. When we see it in the data, how significant do you think this technology can be? What is do you think the, the the potential impact once it once once you can find it in the in in the data the productivity growth which is what the you know kind of the end goal is here? Okay, um, that's a great question. Let me reframe it to say the thing I'm worried about is that it won't be as a, uh, that it won't reach its potential. So a lot of people are worried about the impact of AI on jobs and uh, and what are people going to do if machines are intelligent. So Jason Furman um, was at, uh, attended our first Economics of AI conference. This was in 2017. He uh, was formerly chair of Obama's Council of Economic Advisors. And like, the thing I'm worried about is that there's not going to be enough AI. 
the the productivity booms that we've had in history from you know it's way going back way back to the steam engine and then electricity and in the computer age and the internet um, have been driven by system level change where we figured out how to reinvent the economy and that's led to uh, sustained productivity growth first at you know the steam engine at 0.5 percent and then maybe one percent with electricity and then two uh, percent after the war or more. Um, I don't know what the number is going to be. I know you wanted me to give you a number. I don't know what the number is going to be. That'd be great. <laughs> um, but uh, this technology has potential to be like all those others, assuming we figure out what that system level change looks like and we overcome the various sources of uh, resistance. The sum it up to your concern is less about can can we solve the technical problems versus Will society, will society accept the results exactly. of, 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 of this society, which perhaps has been primed by too many, too many scary movies to worry about everything from robots taking all the jobs to robots taking over the, the, uh, the nuclear weapon systems. Exactly. Exactly. Avi, thanks a lot for coming on the podcast. Outstanding. Thanks. Great talking to you.